This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 160 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest is James Dawson. He's an IT risk analyst providing advice to global organizations on the issues of threat and cyber risk. He's consulted with many organizations in the financial industry, including Danske Bank and Freddie Mac. James Dawson shares his views on the importance of being able to evaluate risk and to do so with open eyes and a level head. He emphasizes the value in taking risks in the workplace, especially for younger workers looking to make their mark. He shares his thoughts on threat intelligence and the challenges organizations face when trying to cut through all of the noise. Stay with us. You know, it's really funny, Dave. I'm kind of an older guy, and, uh, you know, uh, I know it, you know, no one tells their age on the air, but I'm a 60-year-old guy, and I got my start in doing just regular e-discovery, believe it or not, and and actually technology work at uh, Lehman Brothers on Wall Street, um, where we were writing in, um, you know, on Spark stations and very old programs, trying to figure out how to tranche and uh, how to uh, analyze the risk associated with uh, mortgage-backed securities. Hmm. And so where did you go from there? You know, I went up there and I, I went into a, a different world. It was a little bit more of a technology world. We were doing uh, analysis of, of bridges and infrastructure in New York City. Hmm. And um, I went from being a structural engineer into becoming an IT professional. I like to use the term technologist because a lot of young men and women don't realize they're a technologist, but they really are. And they're brought into it by their daily life. How so? How, how, do, you, uh, how do you come to that conclusion? Well, you know, you, you, you don't realize it, but you're sitting there helping the boss. Uh, you're typing things. You're using different programs. You're using maybe a little bit more sophisticated programs than, for instance, uh, Word, Excel, the Office Suite. You might be using, um, you know, uh, an IDE, like Visual Studio.net. Uh, I teach that program, or I have in the past, at, uh, at uh, NYIT here in New York City. Uh, many years ago, but you start to do more complicated things and you think that it's just like your, you know, front end, you know, unstructured data world. But really what you're doing is you're moving into being a technologist. And how do you define being a technologist? I like to think of myself as someone who can, you know, solve problems with the current tools that are at hand. I think of technology as like a tool. It's like a screwdriver or a wrench or a hammer that you have in the shed, or if you're perhaps an artist or a creative person who writes, your tool is the pen, or your tool is the pencil or the keyboard. Your tools are also something like um, perhaps a paintbrush or or maybe a stage. What I mean by tools is that uh, for a technologist, our tools are the computer, programming language, structured and unstructured data, and being able to use applications to get things done. Now, you've spent a lot of time and have a a lot of experience uh, in the financial uh, side of the house. Can can you take us through and and give us some insights on 
some of the the things you've done and the experiences you've had there? Yes, I've I've been really fortunate uh, in my career. I got really lucky every time I made a change in my uh, in my in my career. I have done enterprise information governance and also data governance and data strategy very early on when that sort of profession was in its infancy for for companies like uh, Goldman Sachs or MetLife or or JP Morgan Chase and in, in those times I realized that I was kind of you know to be honest I was actually winging it a little bit and I was kind of greenfielding it I didn't really know all the answers and I didn't really know the right things to do but you know, I, I'm kind of bragging now, but I was brave enough to say, hey, this is what I think. So I think that technology professionals, particularly for your recorded future, you know, uh, you know, profile here, the, the people in your audiences, they've got to take a little risk. You know, they got to get out there and say, I don't really know everything, but I'm an innovative thinker. And this is the way I recognize risk. I think that there's a big void in recognizing risk. And that's what I learned very early on with these financial services companies. I was on Wall Street um, as early as 1999. I know that dates myself. I'm going to sound like an old man to most people. But, um, uh, you know, that was when people took risks. And I think that they didn't know their technology. And they had to start saying that this is just a tool in my shed. I'm going to get something done and I'm going to exhibit some good skill for this company using technology. What have you seen in terms of the maturation of that, the the, the use of technology within those financial companies um, going from when, when you were sort of pioneering some of the, the ways to use them to now uh, where I suppose we have a pretty extensive set of best practices? We do. We like to use the term leading practices because no one knows what's best. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I heard one of your other guests before say best practices, but it's really leading practices. We like to say leading practices. You know, what I think is the leading practice is no one really knows what to do. No one really knows the answer. No one really knows the technology to use. And what I mean by that is if you have the skill to be able to explain something very, very complicated, something that is hard to understand, to a person, a man or a woman who's in a high-level position, he or she is the CEO or the CISO of an organization, you can explain some complicated risks, some complicated situation that involves not only technology, but involves people and their, their interactions with their environments and whether or not they do something for love or money. I always like to say that. If you have that ability to be able to explain that so that uh, that professional, that decision maker understands the risk, then you're going to be successful. It's not whether or not you're a great coder. It's not really whether or not you know great threat intelligence or any other great program. It's whether or not you have the ability to bring it down to the level of someone who's very busy, got a lot on their mind. They have family. They have life issues just like you do. And they can absorb what you tell them, and they can make a decision on it. If you have that skill, that's what I've learned, Dave. I've learned that is the skill to have. Yeah, it's a really interesting insight. I mean, I I, I hear from many people that, uh, you know, their their advice to those folks who are on the tech side of things, especially students who are coming up, 
But don't underestimate the value of that communications class, of that that journalism class, those English classes, to be able to write and, and uh, you know, you're not going to be able to make your case if you're ineffective at communicating it. Yeah, you know, I always tell to students, that the students or the people that I mentor, I say to those men and women, look, write a friendly email, even if you have a very, very bad thing to say. Try to make it friendly. Have a salutation. Have an introduction. Make sure you have something friendly to say at the end. And don't be afraid to put something personal up front. Why? Because the person you're speaking to has got a lot on their mind. They have 150 emails in their box. And they don't know whether or not you are bringing them important information, information that they need to act on. So to lead them in, you know, it's kind of like walking a horse to water. You want to give them something friendly, introduce, say something nice. I always, right now, recently, I've been using in my emails, you know, I hope you're safe and sound in this time of crisis for COVID. Mm. You know, this is a way to lead them in to get them a little more comfortable. And then speak in layman's terms. Don't use acronyms. Don't try to sound technical. Don't try to sound like you know it all. And explain the situation, explain the risk, give a little bit of technology, give a little bit of your um, subject matter expertise. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Um, uh, and then um, try to get them to the point where they can adjudicate on what you're telling them and make a decision. I know that's a little far off from Recorded Future, but I kind of think about that because when I love the title of the program because you think about Recorded Future with people who have to make decisions, they need to make decisions about things that are not yet happening. They they kind mm. of have to guess the future. That's a well, little probably a little far flung, but you know. No, but well, but I mean, it's an interesting thing to consider. I mean, how how important is it, and, and was it when you were? Um, experimenting with these things how important was it that the organizations themselves gave you the leeway to do that that they were willing to take the risks to let you try things well that's a tough that's a tough question dave you know remediation takes two forms you're either putting out fires and fixing old things or things that are happening today and trying to figure them out or you're acting on your knowledge you're acting on what you know is likely to happen. You know, likelihood is probably the most valuable cyber risk analysis tool. You mm -hmm. think of yourself, you think to yourself, you say, is this likely? Is it very likely? Is it unlikely? Is it very unlikely? You know, if you ask yourself that question first, then you'll know how, you know, how much work you have to do. You'll know what you need to do, and you'll need you, you'll know what you need to explain to your to your managers or your constituents. You know, is it likely? Make a judgment first, because very often people spend too much time on the unlikely things, and not enough time on the very likely things. Mm -hmm. So try to make a judgment about likelihood, and I, and I, that goes back to what we were saying earlier about the human aspect of threat and cyber and managing APTs is that you've got to look at the likelihood of it and see whether or not, do you really think this is going to happen? Do I need to escalate this, even though the impact could be very, very large to my boss or to my organization? Do I need to escalate this right now? Or is it just not that likely? Is it, I also like to say, Dave, is it an if of an if of an if? 
you know, mm. will this will this perpetrator, you know, do this, and do they have the means? Are they ready, willing, and able to do? Able is the most important thing to do the bad task. I mean, are they likely to do it? Are they able to do it? If you do that analysis first, you save a lot of work because you're not analyzing and you're not trying to figure out uh, answers for the future um, so far ahead of time. You've only got a smaller bucket to work on. <laughs> yeah, it kind of reminds me of, you know, the, that notion that um, there are a lot of people who are afraid of flying. Um, and, <laughs> you know, statistically, you're you're more likely to lose your life in your car or crossing the street, you know, in, in front of your apartment building than you would in an airplane. But the way I think the way people visualize what uh, what what an end of Going life situation down in flames would be, or something, right? Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean it's it's horrifying, and so it captures your imagination. And I suppose that's one of the things that you have to do is make sure that the folks you're advising uh, don't let their imagination run away with them on those highly unlikely but you know catastrophic events. Yeah, that's risk responsibility design. That's what we call that. Responsibility design when it comes to cyber risk is really difficult because you have to incorporate in that scary aspect of it. You know, everyone always worries, what if this really happens? I mean, right now we're in the COVID pandemic and everyone's worrying, what if an entire country is taken out and all of our, you know, critical people can't come in or it can't even work from home? Mm -hmm. Risk responsibility design has to take in that scare factor. You know, are we going to go down in flames or are we going to go down in that plane? When if you look at it and you look at the likelihood of it, you know, what is the likelihood? I mean, I I I travel a lot, but I, I take, you know, maybe I think that my statistics show that I've been around the globe four times around the entire earth in <laughs> flights, whatever that right. means. I have no idea what that means, but I'm sure it's not good for my carbon footprint. Um, but uh <laughs> You know, what, but what is the likelihood that I'm going to go down in flames, you know? So we're scared about that, and we envision that. We see it in our mind. But it's really not the way to, to convey to the decision maker the risk responsibility. In cyber design and cyber risk, and whenever you're analyzing APTs, don't just put out fires. you got to do that. you got to put out the fires. But look at the responsibility design in the sense that is this really likely to happen? Are you really going to have a crash in the plane? Is the organization really going to be hit with this threat? You know, as you and I know, and you've broadcast on on many of your uh, podcasts, uh, 90% of all threats come from phishing. Mm. They come from phishing initially. And, you know, is it really likely that the person is going to get, the perpetrator or the group is going to get beyond the initial fish to actually hook some data and actually act on it. Are they going to be a perpetrator? Are they going to commit the fraud and and you know actually abuse the organization and their data? Well, I don't know. I don't always know with all threats, and that's what I struggle with every day. I think about how many of those threats are really going to happen. What's the likelihood if it's really going to happen? It would be an if and an if and an if and an if, and the bad guy or the bad gal would really have to be lucky to get to that point. You know, there's not a lot of pros in the in the in the cyber you know in the cyber bad guy world. Well, when you're being mindful of letting your imagination run away with you, 
Is there still a place in all these equations for a gut feeling? There is. And I think that we need to rely on that. I rely on that every day. I really don't know the answers. And I'm often um, presented with um, complex questions and I need to respond to decision makers. And oftentimes those decision makers are compensating me. So I'm really worried about how I respond to them. But I do rely on my gut. I try to lean towards more of a human decision. People do good or bad things for either love or money in the world. And I think that that's very true. I know that sounds very, very basic, but I think it's true. And uh, when I answer a decision maker, especially one that is my boss or someone who's, you know, keeping me employed, I really, really worry about that. I worry about how I'm going to answer and I try to go with my gut feeling. I know that when you're young and you're a young professional, you don't want to go with your gut feeling. You're afraid to take risk. You're afraid to give a bad answer. I had a colleague at uh, one of the banks uh, that I'm uh, advising for. She didn't want to take the risk on the decision. She was worried about, you know, go ahead and using her gut feeling and making, giving some advice to a manager, a senior leadership. And she was worried because she didn't want to make it look like she did something wrong. But you got to take those risks. You can't do everything right. You're not a perfect employee. You're not going to make perfect decisions. As a young person, I think you got to go with your gut instincts and you got to take a chance and say, you know what? I think we need to move forward with this. We need to raise this risk. We need to alert all the people and and maybe they'll all say, oh, that was a dumb thing to bring up or something. But that's a better risk to take than letting that actual threat uh, get into the organization, do something really bad, and it results in reputational risk or multi-million dollar um, risk to the organization in the end. Take a chance, expose yourself, and don't be afraid to say that you could do things wrong and you're vulnerable and you're not always right. I want to touch on uh, threat intelligence, and, and I would, I'd love to get your insights on uh, the, the role that you think it plays in an organization's defenses. You know, I worry about threat intelligence in the sense that, and this is just me being James, but I worry that it's way too much putting out fires, responding to APTs, anything that's happening now. We do a lot of work. I think that organizations do a lot of very good work and very hard work looking at current threats. Threats are very, very, you know, individualistic in the sense that they're happening now. What I think is more important is to step back from that. Have your firemen and women right up front on the front line on the bastion working on those threats that are pounding on your door and on your critical data. But then step back and have a larger team. What I like to think of is a blue-purple team, maybe a, a blue team that is more along the lines of why are these threats coming? What are people after? Why are they trying to extort us? Why are they trying to extort the organization? Are they a disgruntled employee? Are they just an actor from another country trying to make money? Look at the bigger picture, and then you'll be able to put out your current fires much better. Yeah, that's interesting. If if somebody's uh, you're walking out to get your newspaper every morning and you're finding someone's lit your mailbox on fire, Hmm. rather than just buying a new mailbox, you know, every day, maybe it's a good idea to find out, you know, who who has it in for you. 
Yeah. Why are they after you? What is this? Why are these threats coming? I mean, we look at uh, persistent threats. We look at probably we, I, I would say the organizations that I advise to look at, you know, thousands of threats at any given time. I mean, they're coming in, they're very persistent. They go higher and lower. You know, any given week, you'll find beginning of the week, just like a human aspect of that threat is that people don't do a lot of threats in the beginning of the week, and then they get a little more aggressive on Wednesday and Thursday. You know, look at those human aspects, those men and women and those organizations and those groups of people who are, you know, providing those threats to your organization. That's where you need to provide your analysis because just like a fireman or a firewoman in a local town in, you know, in Oklahoma, They'll be much better at going out and putting out the fire at the local farm if they know the people at the farm, they know what animals they have, they know the location of the houses, they know what's going to happen when the when the threat happens to the farm, the fire happens. Be ready for that. Think about your perpetrators. Think about their lives and why they're after you. If you do that, you will be much better at handling persistent threats and all threats Look at the reason that you have perpetrators rather than at uh, just trying to put out fires and understand things at the moment. What is this? Why did this happen? You know, the, the, the instantaneous trying to figure out what's going on to your, you know, in threats to your organization just doesn't work. You know, you but you bring up an interesting um, aspect of this, which is. I would imagine it as you're traveling around the world and dealing with uh, organizations, doing the, the work that you do, it must be an important part of it to get that local perspective, to get those ears on the ground, to find out what the situation, the, the individual situation is uh, so that you have those insights to, to inform what you're doing. You know, there's a lot of great organizations and professional vendors out there that provide those services. You know, I think some of them are your sponsors. I'm I'm not trying to, like, plug them or anything. But you can come up with intelligence. Intelligence is not the hard thing. There's a lot of sources for intelligence. A lot of it is good. I think that 20% of it is bunk. I, I heard one of your guests say from the government uh, that uh, she, didn't, she didn't really rely upon some of that intelligence. Uh, but a lot of it is very, very good. I, I don't think that's the issue. You can always get a body of information, and you can you can buy a technology that will assess that and do you know AI on it and figure out whether or not that is going to provide you any information for future threats. But it's very 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 difficult to predict the future, and it's very difficult to predict what people are after you for unless you look at the human aspects of why are you being threatened. Why are people trying to extort you? Why are countries or organizations going after your bank or your your hospital? There's got to be a reason. And, you know, I know it's a little bit of slang, but it's either love or money. Either they, they, they loved you and they hated you and they used to work there and they want to get after you, or they're a country that wants to go after you for money. And they want to extort your critical data assets and your, your, your mission critical assets where they could hold them in ransom and you'll have to pay them for them. I mean, those are the most likely threats that happen in the world. And it's just a fact. I know it sounds very simple, simplistic, but that's the fact. 
Our thanks to James Dawson for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Monica Tadros, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. 